On today's episode, we have Casino Royale from 2006 and Fight Club from 1999. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we've got casino royale and fight club and i just want to clear the air i realized that i already did a james bond episode where i talked about all the james bond movies But I did make it a point not to talk much about Casino Royale because I knew I'd ultimately want to do an entire episode on it. So I just, I feel the need to point that out because it's like, yeah, I mean, I get it. I covered James Bond a little bit, but this is a whole different thing. And it's such a different movie from the other Bond movies that I just had to give it its own time. So I guess that means we'll just start right off with Casino Royale, which was released on November 17th, 2006, directed by Martin Campbell. He also directed GoldenEye, which is another James Bond movie. It was Pierce Brosnan's first James Bond movie. For the writers, we have Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Paul Haggis. And this is based on the novel Casino Royale by Ian Fleming, who wrote the original James Bond novels in the early 50s to the mid-60s, and he actually died in 1964. For the producers, we have Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, and these two are actually half-siblings, and they're in control of the James Bond franchise, and they make major decisions regarding the franchise. For the score, we have composer David Arnold, and he did some other James Bond movies, mostly Pierce Brosnan ones. I mean, I don't know that those scores really stood out to me, but it's just important to note that he has Bond experience. For the cast, we have Daniel Craig, who plays James Bond 007. He was in Road to Perdition, which is a great movie. Honestly, like, it's a little bit of a... The pace isn't very high the entire time. It's a little slow at times, but it's like... It's a really fucking solid movie. It's got Tom Hanks in it. It's, It's fucking great. And then we have Munich that was one that I actually walked out on with a group of friends from the theater because we were just not feeling the movie. It was just not what we wanted to watch, and so we just decided to call it quits, and it was like, I revisited it, like, a year or two ago or less, and, like, I couldn't get into it again. It was like, I watched the whole thing, but ultimately, I didn't enjoy it. I don't know what it is about it. He was also in Logan Lucky, which I really enjoy. It's um, basically Ocean's Eleven, but with rednecks, and that's pretty fucking solid. He was in Knives Out, which is a great movie, and obviously, I think by the time I release this, the sequel will actually already be around, but I really love Knives Out. And then he was also in the four other James Bond movies in his era. It was like Quantum of Solace, which they say you should specifically watch that movie right after watching Casino Royale because it's the events immediately after Casino Royale, so it's like, it makes more sense that way. And then he was in Skyfall, which was more of a return to form of, like, regular James Bond-type movies. And he he was in Spectre, which I was not a big fan of. They basically tried to make Spectre be, like, that they had orchestrated all of these plots from the first three movies 
with this like one organization and the strings were all being pulled there and it really felt forced and it didn't really work for me. And last but not least, we have No Time to Die, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was a solid movie, but it was his final Bond movie. And so now they're looking for a new Bond and I'm very excited to see who they pick. Next up on the cast, we have Eva Green, who I have noted here is hot, and she plays Vesper Lind. She was in a movie called The Dreamers, which I think she gets super topless in, but you could probably scour the internet and find out for sure. She was also in Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, which was, I I mean, I covered the first one on this podcast, and I love it. But the sequel really lost the magic from the first one. It, It wasn't as good at all. Next up, we have Mads Mikkelsen, who plays Lashif, and he was in Rogue One, which is one of my all-time favorites, especially in the Star Wars world, and that was previously covered on this podcast. Me and my friend Lance actually talked about it, but I really love that one. And then he was in Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, and I just cannot get into those Fantastic Beasts movies. Like, I barely could get into the Harry Potter movies, but like the Fantastic Beasts movies just don't do it for me. Then we have Judy Dench, who plays M, and she was in other James Bond movies, starting with Goldeneye. Then there's Jeffrey Wright, who plays Felix Leiter, and he was most notably in The Batman from 2022 with Robert Pattinson, and he played Jim Gordon in that movie, and that one was really good. For casting notes, producer Michael G. Wilson claimed that at one point over 200 actors were being considered for the role of James Bond. Among those considered were Carl Urban, Sam Worthington, Dougray Scott, Hugh Jackman, Gerard Butler, Ewan McGregor, and Henry Cavill, who was deemed too young at 22 when he auditioned, but Cavill later said that he was actually considered too out of shape for the part. But the list goes on, and it's a very high-profile role. I mean, a lot of people want to be James Bond, and a lot of people get considered for it. Daniel Craig initially rejected the part as he felt the James Bond movies had become too formulaic, but upon reading the script, he changed his mind. There was a lot of controversy surrounding the decision to cast Daniel Craig, and many threatened to boycott the new movie as they didn't feel that Craig fit the bill. They especially didn't like that he was blonde and they weren't going to dye his hair or anything. Which goes to show you that you need to withhold your fucking judgment when actors get cast in major roles like this. Like, he ended up being one of, if not the best Bond, in my opinion. Like, he's really fucking good. Then we have Angelina Jolie, Charlize Theron, and Olivia Wilde were among those considered for the role of Vesper Lind, which ultimately went to Eva Green. For a plot synopsis, we have a secret agent discovers that an organization is funding terrorism and he must enter into a high-stakes poker game to keep the money from falling into the wrong hands. Alright gang, plot time. Alright, so this black and white opening to this movie just kicks so much ass. We basically get like this quick snapshot of the two kills that Bond has to get to reach double O status. This is the earliest in his career that we've ever seen Bond. In all the other movies, he's already a double O agent and he's got a lot of experience under his belt. Basically, all of the other movies before this had a much lighter tone in every way as well. He kills the guy Dryden, who was selling government secrets as well as his contact, but killing the contact ends with Bond shooting him, and it shows him shooting from the POV of the gun barrel, like in the classic Bond opening fashion, where the blood drips down the screen to start the movie. It's a great way to kick off this fucking reboot. I really love that they did that. Like, it when 
you basically are like, what the fuck is this black and white shit that's going on? And then you get that and it's like, oh yeah. Although, like I said, this one feels so different from all the other Bond movies ever, but it has moments that echo the old films as kind of like a fan service, basically. The theme song by Chris Cornell that we we hear during this opening sequence is just okay, but it's nothing to write home about at all. Like, I put it on a playlist once, and I skipped it every time it came up, basically. Fun fact, this is the first movie since Dr. No from 1962, which is the first official Bond movie ever, where there were no nude dancing females during the opening title sequence. I'll be honest, this opening title sequence is kind of fucking weird, and I don't love it, but I don't hate it either. Then we get Mads Mikkelsen, who is a spectacular villain named Le Chief, and in my opinion, he really comes off super evil in this. He's doing this deal with a guy named Obano, who is heading up a group of terrorists, and we get this chase scene in Madagascar that is honestly incredible. Bond chases this man, Malaka through a construction site, and they end up on these cranes very high up and then they wind up at an embassy and at the embassy they set off an alarm and a bunch of men go after bond despite diplomatic immunity being a thing even i know about bond kills malaka and causes an explosion in the embassy to get away i can't imagine even having enough endurance to chase someone for over two and a half minutes if that let alone what seems like an hour with the shooting and being shot at and everything. Like, it's fucking crazy. A little bit of trivia, the opening parkour chase scene took six weeks to shoot, and I would say it was roughly five to ten minutes long, something like that. It's a really great chase sequence, as I mentioned. You do feel as though it's a more modern-style chase scene than we've seen in previous Bond movies. They say that they did this like they were going for more of a Jason Bourne type feel, I guess, so that's kind of interesting. Bond is doing all of this stuff he really shouldn't be, and it seems like they're just trying to convey that he's young and reckless and doesn't give a damn about anything. And in this movie, Lashif's got this creepy fucking weeping bloody eye, and it's such a weird new era Bond villain choice, like... Plus, he's got an inhaler on top of that. We get a brief scene where M is clearly pissed off at Bond for what happened in the embassy, and it's like, come on, let him have some fun murdering people now that he's a double O. Honestly, it was such a good call to bring Dame Judi Dench back, despite the fact that I would have really liked to start totally anew in this rebooted Bond series. So a little bit of trivia on that. Although Dame Judi Dench's M doesn't really sit with the chronology of a rebooted James Bond, director Martin Campbell was very keen to have her on board as he really admired what she had done with the character. Also, I don't want to forget to mention, I love how fucking sleek everything in this fucking movie is. It's just shot so well. I just love it. We see a lot more talked about with Bond's character development and the kind of mentalities he has, and this is on display when Bond breaks into M's house to talk to her. I don't love this moment where we see that they have Bond driving this fucking shitty sedan, even if it's supposed to be like a rental. Like, it just doesn't look right with Bond tooling around in that shit show. I just don't like it at all. 
I want him to be driving at least minimally decent sports cars. If he's going to drive anywhere, I don't really give a shit if it fits the situation or not, or if it seems realistic. It's like, fucking give me a sports car for James Bond. Someone assumes that Bond is a valet guy when he gets to this resort, and Bond wants to take this opportunity, and he just takes their vehicle and crashes it into other vehicles in the parking lot to cause some chaos and get the ball rolling with his investigation. Fun fact, an Aston Martin DB5 is and will always be the coolest Bond car. It's still colossally unaffordable, like multiple millions of dollars for this fucking car if you wanted to buy one today. Bond tries to get a hotel room from this woman at the front desk who is honestly the queen of all hotties, but nothing actually happens with her, which is a total bummer. Like, where's her movie? I've never seen a movie starring a front desk clerk at a resort. That could be fun. She tells him where the guy who owns this Aston Martin he spotted lives, so Bond can apologize for nicking it in the parking lot. MI6 is on to what James is doing because he's deliberately using M's username and password to look up stuff while he's out there at the resort, and basically, it's pretty clear that he just wanted them to know what he was doing. Bond has his eyes on this woman that he saw with a horse at the beach. She's with the guy Demetrios that Bond is investigating. And Bond sits down at Demetrios' table and they're playing cards. And I have never once been the kind of guy who knows how to play cards. Like, I'm just not that guy. My comprehensive list of playing card games I believe that I know are Solitaire and War. And that's it. How come we never get a high-stakes game of Uno in these fucking movies? But anyway, Bond knows how to win and piss off people like Demetrios, who bet his Aston Martin and fucking lost. You can't help but wonder if maybe James Bond is gonna fuck this lady, Solange, who is with Demetrios. Just kidding. There is absolutely no doubt he'll definitely be fucking her. They fuck on the floor, and it seems like a bed might be a more ideal location, but maybe this is just one of those newfangled hotels without beds. Can you imagine just... Close your eyes for a second. Imagine every single person you're attracted to also wants to fuck you and is willing to do that right away. Wouldn't that just be fucking wild? Well, that's what life is like for James Bond. Bond follows Demetrios, but gets caught by him, and they have the cutest little fight over a knife, which Bond wins, so he stabs Demetrios to death. And somehow Bond just gets away with leaving the dead body laying there in this crowd. Like, they're at this exhibit, and it's just, there are all these people around. I don't understand why I'm supposed to believe that people wouldn't react to that. No one even gets curious or anything. If you watch closely, you'll spot Virgin Group CEO Richard Branson going through the airport security. Like, he had a little two-second cameo in this movie. I mean, what a company name to hitch your entire existence to. Like, let's name your company after the thing that most people are desperate not to be. We get another chase, this time through the airport and on the runways and things like that. And as much as I love this movie, it does feel like the first act is approximately 90% chase scenes, including M yelling at Bond for aforementioned chase scenes. But God, are the chases definitely edge-of-your-seat thrill rides. I fucking love them. We see a cop car behind a jet's engine that is taking off, and the engine literally blows the car away. And I guess I didn't realize jet engines could do that, but I guess it kind of makes sense. After a lot of excitement, the chase is over, and Bond attached the explosive device to the bad guy he was chasing, 
as Bond gets arrested and the bad guy accidentally blows himself up without knowing that that's how it was going to go down. Apparently Solange, who Bond fucked on the floor like an animal, was tortured and killed and M is there and man, she seems, and this may shock you, she seems upset with Bond. M reveals to Bond that she's implanted a tracking device in his arm to keep an eye on him. So this is the setup we get for what I guess you could call the main plot of this movie. Lashif is setting up a high-stakes poker game that Bond will have to play in because the plot dictates it to be so. Lashif is going to use any of the winnings he gets for funding terrorism, and they want Bond to beat him so that won't happen. Like, I like that they went with this story and still managed to turn it into a thrill ride because if I recall correctly, the book was a tad slow. And it's at this moment that I realize that Eva Green is coming. Yes, I'm excited. I know I say this a lot, but I want to spend the rest of my life with her. A little bit of trivia, despite being second billed to Daniel Craig, Eva Green does not appear until 58 minutes into this movie. The back and forth between James and Vesper when she arrives is some of the best in the history of cinema. Like, they have so much chemistry, and I once had a friend criticize me for finding Eva Green attractive, and now I'm not friends with that person anymore. Not because of the Eva Green thing, we just had too much friction for friendship. But I thought that'd make me sound like someone who really sticks to his guns and shuns negative energy, so I presented it that way. Vesper is an agent for Her Majesty's Treasury and will be approving Bond's funding for the game, and it doesn't seem like we really need an in-person collaboration for that to happen, but I'm actually okay with it because we get Eva Green. Vesper points out that if Bond loses, the government will technically be directly funding terrorism, and that's a neat thing to bring to the viewer's attention, because it's such an ethical dilemma. So James and Vesper are posing as a couple, and they both could certainly do a whole hell of a lot worse. She gets him a dinner jacket, and it's tailored because she claims that she sized him up the moment she met him, which is kind of bullshit in my opinion. Like, you're not getting the exact right measurements, no matter how good you are, or even if you're a tailor as a job, but I guess it makes her appear even more clever than she already did. Daniel Craig was barely under 40 in this movie, but honestly, he seems so much fucking older than that. I don't know why, but he just does. I've heard people say that they don't love that they changed the game that they play at Casino Royale from the Baccarat it was originally to Texas Hold'em Poker. And I mean, it's a more modern game. I guess they wanted to modernize the game of choice because Texas Hold'em was all the rage back then. I don't know how to play either of them, so it's really no skin off my nose. Vesper comes in looking great in her dress, and she deliberately doesn't do it the way she's supposed to, so only Bond sees her. She was supposed to get the men at the table distracted, and, you know, obviously with not doing that, it didn't really accomplish anything other than distracting Bond. I love how Bond orders his signature drink, and everyone else all of a sudden wants one, and it just pisses Lashif off. A little bit of trivia on that. The way Bond orders his first vodka martini is lifted directly from the Ian Fleming novels. The order is dry martini, three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lele, shake it very well until it's ice cold, and then add a large thin slice of lemon peel. Got it? That's how it goes. I love it. They take a break at four hours into the game, and I can't even imagine playing Texas Hold'em for like 30 minutes, let alone eight hours. This dude from the beginning, Obano, comes to strangle Lashif because he wants his money, and they made the deal when we first met Lashif. As I see Bond in a tux with Vesper, I have a fun fact. 
James Bond actors typically have it in their contracts that they can't appear in a tuxedo in other movies or TV until their stint as Bond is over so that look remains exclusive to them as the character only. I'm not sure who that started with though. I mean, I doubt Sean Connery had that in his contract. I doubt they were going that crazy back then, but I'm sure that Sean Connery's contract made sure that he was paid with $7 worth of peanuts per movie. Bond figures out that Obano came for Le Chief and he goes to the room and intervenes and we get a big fight with Bond and the bad guys in the stairwell and Vesper is there but she's not like a field agent so it's all a bit much for her and she can't really help and she actually kind of freaks the fuck out about it. Bond ends up finding her in a running shower fully clothed which is the first tragedy this film hurls at us. Little bit of trivia on that, in the shower scene, Vesper, played by Eva Green was originally scripted to be wearing nothing but her underwear. Daniel Craig argued that Vesper would not have stopped to take her clothes off, and the scene was changed. The whole shower scene really shows the shit Bond has to cope with on a daily basis and how hard that would be for a lot of people with normal brains. Their contact, who I think is named Mathis, hides the bodies left in Bond's wake in some dude's trunk to frame him, so... We get some Jeffrey Wright, and he is so underrated in this one. He's such a great Felix Leiter. The James Bond movies had been getting away from the character in favor of this douchey Joe Don Baker character, Wade, from the CIA, who was in GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies. Felix just has so much more notoriety in this universe for me. He's much more likable. It's tough because I can't really just explain all the poker that's going on in these scenes, mostly because it'd be boring, but also because I can't really explain poker that well. Like, I know the different good hands to have, like flush, straight, straight flush, royal flush, full house, and all that but the betting I can't always wrap my head around. They think that they've figured out Lashif's bluff, but Lashif figures out what they think and uses it to his advantage, which is pretty fucking sneaky, honestly. James fucks up his whole game and needs more money to be approved by Vesper to get back into the game, but she won't do it. I love this moment where Bond comes to the bartender and says, Vodka Martini, and the bartender's like, shaken or stirred, and he's like, do I look like I give a damn? That exchange is this movie to all other Bond movies in a nutshell, basically. It's just kind of like, yeah, we're we're referencing you, but we're also kind of saying, fuck you, we're doing our own thing kind of thing. Felix stops James and reveals that he works for the CIA and has faith in James and offers to buy James back into the game, but it's on the condition that the CIA bring Le Chief in. But uh-oh, James drank a poison martini, presumably orchestrated by Le Chief somehow, and the whole sequence with this poisoning and Bond dealing with it is fucking amazing. Like, the way they shoot it, it really fucking feels like you're going into a bad place just like him. And he goes into cardiac arrest, and he has to administer himself a shot in his car and defibrillate himself back to life. He is literally going to fucking die because the defibrillator is disconnected and Vesper comes after he passes out and saves him. Then he just fucking shakes it off like a champ and goes back to the game. Bond's going all in on a one in a million hand and 
This fucking contact that they have that helps them hide the bodies, Mathis, is like Mr. Exposition for what's happening in the poker game, talking to Vesper, but he's really just telling us. Vesper is just a character portrayed by a beautiful actress, but it's just like distracting how obvious it is that Mathis's explanation is just a service to the viewer, like it should have been subtler than that. James wins it on a straight flush, and apparently that was so statistically unlikely that it would make even the most reckless gambler cry cringe. Little bit of trivia on that, I looked it up and the chances of holding a flush in Texas Hold'em are roughly 3%. For a full house, it's 2.6%. For Bond's winning straight flush, it's 0.027%. The fact that all of these hands were held in the same round is unbelievable and I wasn't even able to find the percentage chances of all that combination together. Bond and Vesper discuss some things over dinner after the game is over, and he figures out that she has a boyfriend of some sort, and she asks him if it bothers him when he kills people. He says he wouldn't be very good at his job if it did. She gets called away, and Bond somehow realizes something is up and walks out to find her, being kidnapped, it seems. He races in his car to find her, and she's laying in the middle of the road, and he has to swerve to miss her. And then we get one of the more incredible practical effects I can think of, where the car barrel rolls for a very long time. A little bit of trivia on that. In one afternoon's shooting, three Aston Martin DB9 cars valued at $300,000 each were destroyed for the car roll sequence. More about that, the car barrel roll stunt by the Aston Martin DBS broke the world record for the most barrel rolls assisted by a cannon. Originally, the racing specifications of the DBS meant that a standard ramp would not be sufficient to get the car to roll, so the special effects team were called in to install an air-powered cannon behind the driver's seat. This allowed the car to complete seven full rolls. The stunt was officially entered into the Guinness Book of World Records on November 5th, 2006. And Bond is basically out cold after the whole accident, and some men come and get him and cut the tracker out of his arm. Lashif is there, and he reveals that Mathis was with him all along, and that's how he knew that they'd figured out his tell. So we get this gruesome torture scene where Bond is naked in a chair having his balls knocked around by what looks to be a bull mastiff's rope chew toy thing. Lashif is doing the torturing and he wants the money from the poker winnings from Bond and Bond can take a lot of fucking torture of course so given his line of work he doesn't just give it up that easily. He kind of teases Lashif who has him tied up and only makes it worse for himself but it's basically just fun for Bond it seems like but some people are into that kind of thing I guess. Bond can hear Vesper crying out presumably being tortured in another room. Lashif offers to possibly let her live in exchange for the password to get the money and some dude comes and shoots Lashif chief that we don't know and bond wakes up and he appears to be in the hospital but he's barely conscious next thing he knows bond is on a beach somewhere talking to mathis and then some men come and hit mathis with a stun gun or something and take him away so i guess i don't really know what really happens with mathis in the end like they really leave that on a confusing note in this movie like is mathis a good guy is he a bad guy i don't know now Vesper and Bond are being flirty with each other again, but you know she still has a boyfriend, you can't forget that as the viewer. 
don't be the person that has a significant other and flirts with other people when they're not around. That's not cool. A man comes to transfer the money and Vesper types in the account number and Bond gives the password. It's Vesper. Vesper seems distraught now. I think I'm only noticing it because I know what's coming in this movie, so it's kind of hard not to pick up on it. She tells Bond that if all that was left of you was just your smile and your little finger, you'd still be more of a man than anyone I'd ever met. Bond, of course, has to say, that's because you know what I can do with my little finger. Bond and Vesper are clearly in love at this point, and Bond is 100% vulnerable. And so they go fuck because he is James Bond, and I've come to terms with the fact that I'll never look like Daniel Craig does in a Speedo, and I can't really just bring myself to even wear a Speedo to begin with, let alone look like him. Bond tells Vesper that he does love her, and he wants to run away with her, and it all explains so much about his character, especially the way he is with women and all the other stories. They fuck again, I mean, I'll keep you posted as they keep fucking. In retrospect, Vesper really lets herself get carried away leading Bond on like she does. Like, she really digs herself a hole in this scenario. She's leaving to go to the bank, and you just know it's not going to end well. M calls Bond to ask when they're transferring the money, and Bond immediately knows something is up because it should have already been transferred. He's too late to catch Vesper at the bank, and it's like, fuck, she did really do him dirty on this one. Bond's investigating and looking around, and he finds Vesper handing off the money, but he gets seen, and the men taking the money say they'll kill her, and like a pimp, Bond says, allow me, because he is fucking pissed. Bond shoots some tanks that look like inflatable raft tubes, and it sets off a chain reaction that is sending an entire building underwater, but kind of slowly at first. So I looked this up, and apparently old buildings like these on the water have actual flotation devices on their lower level that somehow keep them at the right level and not just diving right into the water. Vesper is trapped in a locked elevator that basically serves as a cage, and Bond finally gets to her, but he can't undo the lock, and Vesper says, I'm sorry, James. Then she's completely underwater, and he can't save her from drowning, and it's fucking heartbreaking, just the whole thing as it's unfolding, it's just devastating. Bond desperately tries to get at her and manages to pull her out, but he can't resuscitate her when he gets her out of the water. And I don't know how to do any of that shit. You know, I couldn't do CPR to save my life, so I'd be kind of fucked in that situation. I wouldn't have been holding out hope that I was going to save her after the fact. He's about to go full berserker as he accepts her death, and you just feel for him because you know how much he loved her. It's like she could have been his one and only someone for life, but now his title will be Mr. Thug'em, Fuck'em, Love'em, Leave'em, because I don't fucking need him. Yeah, that's right. That's a Jay-Z lyric. You didn't think you'd get it from me, but uh, I got all sorts of tricks up my sleeve. M explains afterward that Vesper's boyfriend was kidnapped by the organization Lashif was with, and they blackmailed her. M establishes that Bond no longer trusts anyone, which she says is good. He says he doesn't need any extra time after what's happened when she offers, and he says the job is done, the bitch is dead. And M points out that Vesper likely saved Bond's life when he was being tortured. Vesper probably knew that she was going to die, and this movie does feel like it has no fewer than six false endings before it's finally over. So one last thing, Bond has to kill a Mr. White who was 
was behind a lot of the stuff, I think. Like, I think he was the guy that came and killed the chief and when Bond was getting tortured. And as he's killing this Mr. White, he introduces himself as Bond, James Bond, and we fucking roll credits, and it's fucking spectacular. So, praise for this movie. The overall look of this film is so enticing, it just really is cool to look at. The intensity of the scenes throughout, especially the chases in the first act, are great. I really enjoy the love and betrayal from Vesper to Bond. It's really well done. And the character development, like just knowing more about Bond as a person is better. I I like it a lot more. I mean, I don't really have any real criticisms. I mean, maybe the false endings are not my cup of tea, but I'm okay with them. So a little bit of trivia. To prepare for the role, Daniel Craig read all of Ian Fleming's novels and talked with Mossad and British Secret Service agents who had served as advisors on Munich from 2005. Daniel Craig gained 20 pounds of muscle for this role, and this was the first movie in 44 years of James Bond where it actually rains. This was the first James Bond movie to be based on a full-length Ian Fleming novel since Moonraker from 1979. As of 2022, it remains the last James Bond movie based directly on an Ian Fleming novel. Producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson didn't secure the rights to Casino Royale until 2000 when Sony exchanged them for MGM's rights to Spider-Man. Daniel Craig is the first actor to play James Bond who is actually younger than the series itself. Barbara Broccoli said that she wanted Daniel Craig for the role after seeing his performance in the 2004 film Layer Cake. Also, the movie Layer Cake got a huge bump in popularity after it was covered in a listener requests episode of the podcast Brandon at Random Reviews. Tell your friends. Product placement was deliberately scaled back for Casino Royale following the criticism leveled at Die Another Day from 2002 for excessive product placement, which earned itself the nickname Buy Another Day. Die Another Day was the last movie they made before Casino Royale, so it was pretty bad in a lot of ways, I'll be honest. Supposedly, Sir Sean Connery, Sir Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and George Lazenby all supported the casting of Daniel Craig as James Bond, and it's like, gee, thanks, George Lazenby and Timothy Dalton. I'll bet this whole fucking thing was probably riding on your blessing. Having Pierce Brosnan return for a fifth engagement as James Bond would have cost the producers $30 million. The chase around the Miami airport was actually filmed at three separate airports in three different countries. They were Nassau International Airport in the Bahamas, Dunsfold Park Aerodome in England, and Rusine International Airport in the Czech Republic. One little IMDb nugget, I haven't been getting a lot of them lately, but I really loved this one. Sir Roger Moore, who portrayed Bond in seven movies in the 70s and 80s, was reportedly so impressed with Casino Royale that he went out and bought a DVD of it. Isn't that nice? Info and ratings. We have a runtime of 144 minutes, budget 150 million, opening weekend 40.8 million, worldwide gross 616.5 million, IMDb rating 8.0, Rotten Tomato Critics score 94%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 90%, personal rating 5 out of 5 stars. This is one of the very best James Bond movies and it's one of my favorite all-time movies in general. So I just absolutely love it. All right, moving on to Fight Club, released on December 15th, 1999, directed by David Fincher. 
He made Alien 3, which I still need to see. I mean, I loved the first two Alien movies, and I I don't know. I've heard mixed things about Alien 3, but I'd like to see it just because I love David Fincher. He also made Seven, which still holds up as one of the great crime thrillers of our time. I fucking love that movie. I think it's great. It's a lot. There's a lot of suspense and stuff in it. It's just wonderful. He also made Zodiac, which is about the Zodiac killings from the 1960s. And that one is super fucking suspenseful, too. I really fucking love that one. And he also made Gone Girl, which actually is either it might have already been released or it's soon to be released. I've covered it on this podcast and you'll be able to hear more about what my thoughts are on Gone Girl in a little bit. For the writer, we have Jim Ools, and this is based on the novel Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Producers Art Linson, Scene Chafin, and Ross Grayson Bell. Art Linson did Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I still enjoy after all these years, and you really wouldn't think I would. The Untouchables, which is one that I need to revisit. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I know it's a good movie. I just, I don't really remember much of it. And he also did Heat, which is an epic crime thriller, like just top-notch Michael Mann movie. It's really good. I really love Heat. Scene Chafin only did a bunch of other David Fincher movies, and it's no surprise because she's actually married to David Fincher. So for the score, we have composers The Dust Brothers, and they've worked with The Beastie Boys and Beck, but they also produced the smash hit song Mbop by Hanson, And I got to tell you, if you told me like, hey, you remember that movie Fight Club? You remember the music that they they have in it? It's pretty dark and all that stuff. Well, what if I told you that there is a song that they did that is going to just fucking knock your socks off? For the cast, we have Edward Norton, who plays the narrator, and he was in Primal Fear. That was his first major role, and he really is good in that movie. I mean, like, I'm not a big Richard Gere fan, but Edward Norton is fucking solid in that movie. It's one of those movies that once you know what happens, you don't really want to watch it over again, so I haven't seen it in several years, but it's pretty fucking good. He was also in American History X, which is a great movie. It's about race and it's very thematic and things like that. It's just, I find it weird that the director basically like wanted to disown that movie and didn't want anything to do with it after it was done. I don't really know why, but I guess it's just the way he felt. He was also in The Italian Job, which was previously covered on this podcast. And you might have heard when I talked about it in that episode that he was pretty difficult to work with and he didn't want to be there because he was under contract and he was basically being forced to do it. But it was like, I mean, he was still good in the movie, so I can't really fault him for that. He was also in Moonrise Kingdom, which is a Wes Anderson movie. It's probably my favorite Wes Anderson movie by far. He's obviously been in a lot of others, but those ones stood out to me. Then we have Brad Pitt, who plays Tyler Durden, and he was in Snatch, which is a Guy Ritchie movie, and that one is pretty fucking solid. I mean, I watched it within the last few years, and I still enjoy it to this day. It's a really great movie. He was also in the first three Ocean's Eleven movies. He was in Troy, which I've still never seen, and I've never gotten like a glowing review about that movie that like leads me to believe I need to see it. And then he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which 
I've seen one time and I was underwhelmed by it, but I want to watch it again to see if I missed something because it's Quentin Tarantino. So it's like, you know, it's got to be decent. Next up, we have Helena Bonham Carter, who plays Marla Singer, and she was in Planet of the Apes from 2001, which was a remake and it was a legitimately awful movie. And I saw it in theaters and I remember thinking, what the actual fuck was that? She was also in Big Fish, which is a Tim Burton movie. She's a big Tim Burton collaborator. I believe they might be romantically involved. I'm not sure. But anyway, she was in that movie. And that movie, like, people don't understand what I'm talking about when I say this. But, like, the dialogue in a lot of Tim Burton movies is fucking awful. Like, it's it doesn't seem realistic at all. And it doesn't resonate with me at all. And she was also in the Harry Potter movies, which I, I've mentioned I just can't really get into the Harry Potter movies that much. Then we have Meatloaf, who plays the character Robert Paulson, and you probably know him as a multi-platinum recording artist. He had such albums as Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell 2, and he's the guy that would do anything for love, but prices and participation may vary. Then we have Jared Leto, who plays Angel Face, and he played the Joker in Suicide Squad, and that was a fucking unacceptable representation of the character all around. Like, he literally sent used condoms to his fellow cast members on that set just to show how crazy into his character he was. I don't really want to talk about Jared Leto if it's not about how much I hate his portrayal of the Joker. I understand he is a great actor. He's he's very solid, but I just can't get past the Joker thing. It just pisses me off. So a little bit of casting notes. We have Russell Crowe was considered for the role of Tyler Durden. Matt Damon and Sean Penn were considered for the role of the narrator. Courtney Love, Winona Ryder, and Reese Witherspoon were considered for the role of Marla Singer. Reese Witherspoon was originally selected, but turned it down for the film being too dark, which, yeah, it would be really fucking off-brand for Reese Witherspoon to star in this movie. Like, it'd be really fucking weird if she was in it. For the plot synopsis, we have... A man seeking to cope with his monotonous and sleep-deprived life joins several support groups under various aliases and ultimately comes across a guy who changes the way he sees the world. Alright guys, it's plot time. Okay, so this movie is going to take a lot out of me. I can already fucking feel it. Our protagonist, played by Edward Norton, has a gun in his mouth and we're seeing the end of this movie before it reverts back to the start. Right off the bat, he says, I know this because Tyler knows this, and it makes me feel so stupid for not knowing the twist when I first saw this. My late friend Scott Hopper claimed he saw the big reveal coming in this movie, and I just don't know if I buy it. Tyler Durden is played by Brad Pitt, but we don't really meet him until later in the movie. The narrator is at a support group for testicular cancer, and he's being hugged by a man who has grown bitch tits, as he affectionately calls them, due to hormone therapy. And the whole bitch tits thing provides some light comedy at the very beginning of the movie, which is kind of nice. He jumps back even farther in his story and explains his insomnia and how he's in a trance all the time due to lack of sleep. According to Google, sleep disorders are very common. They affect up to 70 million Americans every year. Insomnia symptoms occur in approximately 33 to 50% of the adult population, while chronic insomnia disorder that is associated with distress or impairment is estimated at 10 to 15%. 
The narrator literally only knows what day of the week it is by his boss's tie color, like that's how out of it he is. The narrator explains how he has become enthralled with consumerism, buying every little thing he sees from places like Ikea, and he sees the doctor about the insomnia and they refuse to give him meds for it. And he says he's in pain, and that's when the doctor suggests that he check out the cancer support group where the real pain is. And the guy at the testicular cancer group tells the saddest story about how his now ex-wife just had her first child after she couldn't have one with him because of his testicular cancer. Bitch Tits Bob re-enters the story, giving a long hug and crying about his life. The narrator has chosen the name Cornelius, and he's initially hesitant, but he cries into Bob's arms, and that's some name to pick for someone who doesn't want to call attention to himself. Cornelius? Really? He feels this hug has given him freedom and release, and so he starts going to every support group he can find in hopes of finding more of that. But it's unclear what made him get like this, but it doesn't really matter because mental illness is a complex thing and there's not always a great root cause, and that's not really what this story is about. All of a sudden, this woman, Marla Singer, played by Helena Bonham Carter, shows up to the testicular cancer meeting, and he immediately hates Marla because she's a faker, even though he's also a faker. But it's like she's ruined this little gig he has going to the groups. He calls her a tourist, he says her lie reflects his lie, and all of a sudden his insomnia is back. He stays up at night watching shitty infomercials, and at one group, this woman who is dying of cancer speaks, and she says she's lonely and wants to get laid, but no one will fuck her. She starts to get carried away talking and kind of giving her, have sex with me please, pitch, and they kind of stop her. Marla has invaded the narrator's every thought, it seems. He confronts her, and he says he's on to her, and she doesn't really care at all. She mocks him and says she saw him rehearsing telling her off, and that if he exposes her, she'll expose him. And honestly, Helena Bonham Carter is great in this. I love the way she plays this character. So the narrator says that the support groups are great because the people listen instead of just waiting for their turn to talk. And so him and Marla decide to split up the support groups that they go to so they don't actually have to see each other. And this Marla's a real fucking wild card. Like, she's stealing clothes from a laundromat while she's talking to the narrator, and then she's walking into traffic to cross the street and go to sell the clothes at a secondhand store of some sort. And it's like, holy shit. He suggests that they should exchange numbers in case they want to switch nights sometime, and I guess that would make sense. I should mention that our narrator is an automobile recall specialist. He travels all over inspecting cars for defects and warranty claims after accidents and whatnot, and he loses all track of time as he crosses time zones and catches different flights all over the place. He talks about his single-serving life, where everything is an individual one-shot use. He looks at some gruesome wrecked cars and explains how they calculate when to actually do a recall, and explains it all to this horrified woman next to him on a plane. All of a sudden, he's sitting next to Tyler Durden. He plays someone who might be the coolest person you should never really fully want to be, ever. 
his interaction with Tyler is unlike any other he seemingly had, and Tyler's very honest and sells soap and shares wild tidbits like how to make homemade napalm. A little bit of trivia, at a certain point in the movie, Tyler Durden was originally going to recite a workable recipe for homemade explosives as he does in the novel, but in the interest of public safety, the filmmakers decided to substitute fictional recipes for real ones. Tyler gives him his card for the fuck of it, and he's off. We don't know what's going to happen next. The narrator gets stopped at baggage claim because his suitcase was vibrating, so they had to confiscate it and inspect it for bombs. And they say it's usually like a dildo or a vibrator when that happens, so they kind of tease him a little bit that maybe he has a dildo in his bag. He leaves the airport and comes home to find out his apartment has exploded and he lost everything he owned on top of not having the suitcase even. It's pretty cool how they explain how the explosion might have occurred. Like, they do these really cool shots of the individual things, and, like, the pilot light might have gone out in the stove and filled the apartment with gas, and then when the fridge compressor kicked on, that might have been how it was ignited. It's just, it's pretty cool. They just kind of show that whole process. He calls Marla first, but hangs up on her to call Tyler, and they really go to such fucking great lengths to not give the narrator a name. Like, he jars Tyler's memory by reminding him who he was on the plane, but he can't just say, hey, it's Fred Andrews, you remember me from the plane, right? Tyler and our protagonist talk about what happened to his stuff in the fire while sitting at a bar. He seems so distraught, like he'd almost bought everything that he needed, basically. And we get this great fucking quote from Tyler. He says, fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. Tyler is very anti-materialism, super minimalist type of guy, and he has a lot of interesting viewpoints on life. He says the things you own end up owning you, and as they're leaving, the narrator suggests he might be getting a hotel, and Tyler tells him to quit bullshitting him and asks to stay with him, so he asks, and he does. Then all of a sudden, Tyler asks the narrator to hit him as hard as he can, but first... We get some backstory on Tyler, and it's basically explained that Tyler is a projectionist at a movie theater, and Tyler splices single frames from pornos into the movies there, so that, like, you just get this tiny little glimpse of this porno at the height of the most important part of a movie... It's like you just, you think you saw something, but you don't know. This movie actually does something similar to that. It splices individual out-of-place frames in, but you actually have to watch really closely to catch them. Tyler also waits tables at a restaurant where he taints the food with his bodily substances for the fuck of it. And back at the present, after much reluctance, the narrator hits Tyler as hard as he can in the fucking ear. Then Tyler hits him back, and they start to realize the experience is very therapeutic for some reason, and they end up really enjoying fighting. So they go back to Tyler's place, and it's a fucking rundown as shit old house, and just, like, nothing seems to fucking work in this house. The plumbing is terrible, like, it's dirty water, and the electrical doesn't work, and all sorts of shit like that. Like, I could never sleep a night in this house. I could never get comfortable enough, let alone, like, actually live there. Sometime later, they're back at the bar fighting outside again, and some guys see them, and they want to join in, and the crowd seems to grow every night, which I could see people wanting to get in on it. It would be 
pretty fucking interesting. They're drunkenly hitting golf balls off the roof at one point, and a little trivia on that. In the short scene where Brad Pitt and Edward Norton are drunk and hitting golf balls, they really are drunk, and the golf balls are sailing directly into the side of a catering truck. At work, the narrator can't focus, and because of all the fighting, he's having trouble hearing and stuff, and they talk about their life experiences, the narrator and Tyler. Tyler says that his father told him once to get married as the next stage in a series of life accomplishments, and Tyler says, we're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need. The Fight Club is growing to a couple of dozen people, and it gets broken up by the police, so they decide to find a place to have the fights on the regular. And this movie is so fucking dark this entire time. Like, dark in tone and dark in overall look. It's fucking crazy. We get the awesome rules of Fight Club, which start off with, you do not talk about Fight Club, and you do not talk about Fight Club. All of these different people from different backgrounds are coming there, and then not talking about it at work or wherever else, and... And I just feel like this would be a lot harder for them to get up and running than it was for them. But it does seem like it'd be amazing in a certain way. And honestly, watching them groom themselves with this fucking dirty-ass water at this house just grosses me the fuck out. Marla calls after a couple of months and wonders why the narrator hasn't been going to the groups. And she tried to OD and called him just to talk to see if she might just die while talking to him, I guess. So... He basically leaves the phone off the hook while she's talking and walks away. And I gotta say, Helena Bonham Carter is so fucking mystifying in this. A little bit of trivia, Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter spent three days recording orgasmic sounds for their unseen sex scenes. A little bit more trivia, the sex scene between Tyler and Marla was shot using the same bullet time technique used in The Matrix from 1999. Still cameras were set up in a circle around the bed, and each one would take a single shot in sequence... These single frames were then edited together and enhanced with CG, as both Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter were both fully clothed in motion capture suits during the shoot. Tyler's door is closed the next morning, and Marla comes waltzing into the kitchen after presumably fucking Tyler, and the narrator is furious that she's there. Tyler tells the story of finding the phone left off the hook and Marla being on the other end, and Tyler went to go find her and brought her back. So... Tyler and her fucked all fucking night, and Tyler tells the narrator not to talk to Marla about Tyler ever, which is another thing that you wouldn't ordinarily think anything of when watching this for the first time. So now our narrator is dealing with living in a house where Tyler and Marla are fucking nonstop and shaking the walls and shit. The narrator is becoming kind of a tough guy at work, and his boss is fed up with his shit. The cops call and say that they found out that at his exploded apartment, they figured out someone sprayed Freon in his lock and shattered the lock cylinder. They figured out that the explosion was from a homemade bomb. The cop asks if he's made any enemies lately, since it seems like it was a very deliberate thing that happened, but the narrator doesn't really know what to say. The narrator points out that aside from humping, Tyler and Marla never seem to be in the same room together. She comes and kind of gets flirty with our narrator, and she can't really understand why he's not receptive to her advances. That night, Tyler and the narrator are going to make soap, like bars of soap. First, they have to get fat, so they steal it from a liposuction clinic dumpster. Then we get this scene where Tyler puts chemical burn on the back of the narrator's hand, and it is fucking rough to watch. Like, he's in a lot of fucking pain. 
and basically Tyler won't neutralize the burn until he lets go and frees his mind. The narrator gets caught making copies of the Fight Club rules at work and gets very intense about defending himself to his boss and writes it off as someone else's shit. His boss is clearly fed up with him by this point and Marla calls the narrator to have him do an at-home breast exam on her because she's freaking out about having cancer. She appears to be all good and the relationship dynamic is so weird with Marla and the narrator. But as he's leaving Marla's, he runs into bitch tits Bob and it turns out Bob has gotten into the fight club thing and it's happening on nights that the narrator doesn't even know about. I really like Meatloaf in this movie. Like he does do a really good job. Like, I didn't realize he was such a good actor. So the Fight Club is growing in popularity, it seems, and Tyler points out that it means that the members have been talking about it, which they're not supposed to do. And God, I really fucking hate Jared Leto. This is where he, like, makes his debut. And as soon as I see him, I'm just fucking annoyed. These men come and break up the club in this basement, and it turns out that it's the guy who owns the club named Lou that they're using the basement of. Lou wants them out, but Tyler says he has an arrangement with the guy who works there and they use it for free. Tyler suggests that Lou and his men join the fight club. Lou's big friend starts wailing on Tyler and Tyler starts doing the creepiest laugh ever as he just takes this fucking beating. It's so unsettling to watch. Ultimately, Tyler scares Lou into leaving them alone, and it's probably one of the more definitive moments of this movie. You're starting to wonder who this Tyler might actually be and what's going on with him. Tyler assigns everyone in the club to start a fight with some random person and lose, and we get a hilarious sequence of a couple of fights being started. Like, this guy is, like, hitting some dude with a hose. Like, he's spraying him with a hose, and it's like, he's trying to get him to fucking fight him, and it's like he doesn't want to, and then narrator points out that it's pretty difficult to actually start a fight since most normal people don't actually want to fight and they'll avoid it at all costs. The narrator sits down to talk with his boss and he decides that he wants to blackmail him with what he knows about the car standards within their company. He says that he'll keep his mouth shut in exchange for his regular pay without having to work. Then our narrator starts kicking the ever-loving shit out of himself with the intent of framing his boss for that too. He says beating himself up reminds him of his first fight with Tyler. The narrator has clearly gone more nuts than we already knew him to be, it seems. And so the narrator gets this deal and he gets to take some computer shit home and he gets to leave work and get paid to not be there. Tyler keeps on giving the guys new assignments and they get increasingly more disruptive and often on a more massive scale. Tyler goes into the store with a gun, seemingly to rob it, and he grills the guy behind the counter while holding a gun to his head, asking him about what he's doing with his life. And he basically forces the guy to get back on track with his life and sends him on his way and tells him that he'll be back to check on him. Tyler starts monologuing and the screen starts shaking in a tight close-up on his face and he's sharing more of his feelings about life and stuff. And it's a pretty fucking intense moment and it's really cool how they do that with the camera. Marla and the narrator talk, and he wants to know what she's getting out of the arrangement with Tyler. They start getting into an intense discussion, and Marla seems very frustrated, naturally so. On the front porch, we see what we're supposed to understand is an applicant who has come to be put through a hazing ritual to see if he can hack it as a recruit for what Tyler and the narrator are starting. They let the first guy in and then bitch tits Bob shows up on the porch and Tyler tells him that he's too old and to leave. 
Bob doesn't really get it at first, and he doesn't realize that he's supposed to be seeing if he can actually take the abuse, but the narrator talks him out of leaving. So more recruits come, and they're working around the house, and so Tyler's basically building an army, and we don't really exactly know to what end. Then on the news, they see that people are investigating the fight clubs, and the men also started a giant smiley face fire on the side of a building and the narrator is fucking pissed at them for doing something so stupid they're calling this whole thing project mayhem which makes me think of butters on south park because he has like his alter ego evil villain professor chaos and his sidekick general disarray and i just fucking love it but it that's what it makes me think of project mayhem they then threaten to kill the cop who is starting to investigate them like I know there are a lot of hive-minded individuals out there, like real follower types, so I kind of feel like this could all easily happen. The narrator really kicks the shit out of Jared Leto, and it is pretty fucking gratifying to watch. Like, you can't not notice the very obvious hints at the reveal that's coming with not being a first-time viewer. You just see it everywhere. It's, it's so so obvious. In the car, while it's raining, the narrator asks Tyler why he wasn't included in the Project Mayhem plans, and Tyler says that the narrator decided his own level of involvement in the project. Tyler keeps threatening to swerve into oncoming traffic, and it's very fucking unnerving, and you believe he may actually do it. Then Tyler reveals that he was the one who blew up the apartment, which is a huge reveal. They get into a very intense crash, and you don't know what to make of everything Tyler's been saying. All the main actors in this movie, though, they're all fucking going all out with their performances. I love it. Suddenly, Tyler leaves the house, and he's just gone, and the narrator really wants to figure out what's going on and where Tyler is, but the first rule of Project Mayhem is you do not ask questions, so he's not getting any leads because fucking everyone is a member of Project Mayhem and blindly follows the rules. So Marla comes to the house and asks to come in, and the narrator assumes that she's looking for Tyler, but he says that he's not there, naturally, and she just has this, like, what the fuck are you talking about? look on her face. The guys bring in one of their own who has died of a gunshot wound that came as a result of one of their vandalism plans gone awry and the police caught them. It turns out that the guy is bitch tits Bob and the narrator pleads with them that Bob was a real guy with a real name and they all start chanting his name and the narrator is super frustrated by these fucking drones and their behavior. The cops call, but the narrator hangs up before saying too much and starts to go all over by plane looking to find Tyler. He finds out how busy Tyler has been setting up all of these branches all over trying to build an army. He talks to so many people who are in on the whole not talking about it or asking questions thing, and it would just be so fucking frustrating. Then he meets one man in one of those severe neck injury metal halo things who provides the big reveal. The narrator is Tyler, but for the sake of clarity, I will still refer to Ed Norton as the narrator and Brad Pitt as Tyler going forward. The narrator created Tyler as an extension of his subconscious or some shit. The narrator calls and asks Marla if they've ever fucked because he doesn't really believe that they ever have, and she basically spells out that they have, and then she calls him Tyler. Tyler shows up at this hotel where the narrator is and explains that the narrator created him because he was everything the narrator was not. Like, 
he just took that and fucking ran with it and it just got out of control and it's fucking crazy. The narrator wakes up later in the hotel where he was talking to Tyler and Tyler's gone. I just love the end of this movie. Like you're on the edge of your seat guessing the whole fucking time what could possibly be next. The narrator really starts uncovering the extent of all the things that Tyler has been doing or rather the narrator has been doing. He finds Marla and tries to talk through what's going on at this restaurant where all the employees are members of Project Mayhem and he even tells Marla how much he cares for her which it's really unclear if he actually does i mean he has basically hated marla this entire movie and has shown no semblance of care for her that we've seen the narrator tries to warn marla that her life is in danger and sends her off on a bus and doesn't want to know where she's going but he tells her to stay out of big cities because he knows something big is coming he then tries to go to the police to tell them what he's been doing and what might be coming Then, in the interrogation room, the cops ask him some stuff, and one cop leaves, and all of a sudden it becomes clear that the remaining officers are all members of Project Mayhem. They say that Tyler warned them that if anyone, even Tyler slash the narrator, tried to jeopardize the project, they'd have to remove his balls. Oh my god, can you fucking imagine if you planned something that you knew was bad, and then you planned for your every potential move after that to stop it without consciously knowing about it? Jesus. The narrator manages to get one of their guns from them and escapes, and it's a mad dash as he tries to find out where the bombs are planted in the city, and Tyler keeps randomly showing up to fuck with the narrator, and the narrator finds a van loaded with explosives and wants to disarm the bomb, and Tyler explains that there are several other bombs, and he can't defuse them all. He manages to defuse the first one, but Tyler starts kicking the shit out of him, and then he tries to shoot Tyler, which Tyler points out is dangerous around that much nitroglycerin, and the bullets do nothing, as Tyler is imaginary, of course, and after a bit, Tyler has the narrator tied up in a chair at the top of the building looking out over the city, and Tyler's holding him at gunpoint, and they're going to watch the fucking city fall into ruin. The narrator realizes he can force himself to recognize that Tyler is not real, even though it doesn't feel like it, and he gets the gun from Tyler that way, and he threatens to blow his own brain out to kill Tyler. He puts the gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger, and Tyler dies, but somehow the narrator doesn't actually die, and some members come and see what the narrator has done, and could you imagine, like, these guys were just coming up upstairs to die since they knew this building was supposed to blow. Then Marla is there and she can't really process the situation. The narrator grabs Marla's hand and says, you met me at a very strange time in my life and the Pixies song, Where Is My Mind, comes on as the bombs start to go off and I'll never be able to not think of this movie when I hear that song. And the buildings all come crashing down and that's fucking it. I love it so much. So praise the style of the way the movie is shot just all of the darkness. It's so cool. The three main performances are top-notch, and the the balls-to-the-wall storyline where you never know what's next in this, it's fucking wonderful. I don't really have any criticisms. I mean, I don't watch this movie as much as I used to because I think, like, the shock value of the actual movie wears off. It's not quite as... It doesn't have that, like, same initial hit, obviously, like once you know what's coming. So for trivia, I thought this was pretty interesting. So author Chuck Palahniuk 
first came up with the idea for the novel after being beaten up on a camping trip when he complained to some nearby campers about the noise of their radio. When he returned to work the following Monday, he was fascinated to find that nobody would mention or acknowledge his injuries, instead saying such commonplace things as, How was your weekend? Palahniuk concluded that the reason people reacted this way was because if they actually asked him what had happened, a degree of personal interaction would be necessary, and his workmates simply didn't care enough to connect with him on a personal level. It was his fascination with this societal quote-unquote blocking which became the foundation of the novel. Author Chuck Palahniuk also has stated that he found this film to be an improvement on his novel, which is super fucking rare, especially coming from the author himself. Edward Norton lost 17 to 20 pounds for this role after having to beef up tremendously for his role as a neo-Nazi skinhead in American History X from 1998. Director David Fincher shot over 1,500 reels of film, more than three times the usual amount for a 120-minute film. But this film is actually like 20 minutes longer than that, but it's still impressive. Then last but not least, supposedly Brad Pitt was paid $17.5 million for his part in the film. Edward Norton was paid $2.5 million. And I say supposedly because actor salaries are not typically made public, and it's not clear what the source was here. So... I mean, I don't doubt it because Brad Pitt was like a hot commodity back then, but and it still kind of is. But I mean, I don't, I don't know what to make of it when I see actual information on on actors' salaries, you know. So, all right. So, info and ratings. We have a runtime of 139 minutes. Budget 63 million. Opening weekend 11 million. Worldwide gross 101.2 million. IMDb rating 8.8. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 79%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 96%. Personal rating, still 5 out of 5 stars. After all these years, I still adore this movie. It's, like I said, the rewatches, it degrades after a couple of rewatches, but it's still very good. It's a very enjoyable movie. I fucking love it. All right, everyone. Well, that's our episode for today. I really appreciate you stopping by, as always. And... Obviously, you know, if you have any suggestions or requests, just uh, send them my way and I might actually do something about it. All right. Okay, everybody. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.